I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we launched the first of our nine-part series on homelessness. The series is called In My Place. The series is brought to you thanks in part to Pinnacle Financial Partners. In My Place educates listeners on what cities like Nashville can do to prevent and end homelessness while caring for our neighbors who are still unhoused. We'll talk to national and local guests about everything from best practices to worst failures and hear from people who intimately know the complexities of having nowhere to go. This show highlights how affordable housing affects each of us, even if we think it doesn't. To help us get a better understanding of the known facts about homelessness, what it really looks like, the causes of homelessness, what cities can do to solve the problem and dispel common myths, I'd like to introduce my first guest. Dr. Mary Beth Shin is a Vanderbilt professor and faculty member. Dr. Shin, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So you are a nationally recognized researcher and are currently also teaching at Vanderbilt University. Tell me this, how did you get into this field? Uh, Well, about 30 years ago, when homelessness began to spill out of Skid Rose and into uh, the nation's streets and our consciousness, uh, I was a young mom in in New York, and my kids would tug on my sweater and say, Mommy, why is this person out there uh, on the street sleeping? And I really had no answer to that. So when I had the opportunity to get involved in, in research on the topic, I jumped on it. What was the first piece of research you worked on? Uh, New York City at that point had uh, offered a right to shelter to people who experience homelessness. And uh, they thought that if they could simply staunch the flow into homelessness, they might be able to help the people who were already homeless get out. But people were coming in faster than they were leaving. And so the first study was to try to understand among families who were receiving public assistance, welfare, Uh, what what differentiated those who entered homelessness versus those who remained stably housed. When did you first come to Nashville? 16 years ago. What did you find when you got here? Well, homelessness is a problem here, too. Uh, And like everywhere else, it's basically caused when people at the bottom of the income distribution can't afford the rent. And as every Nashvilleian knows, rent has been going up mm-hmm. uh, over the last decade and a half since since I've been here. Uh, the GAO says that every $100 increase in median rent leads to a 9% increase in homelessness within cities. Uh, so you can understand why we have a problem in Nashville. Yeah. Okay, so tell me, how is homelessness defined? People define it differently. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, talks about homelessness, sometimes called literal homelessness, when people are on the street or in a place not meant for people to sleep uh, or in shelters or other programs for folks experiencing homelessness. The Department of Education has a much broader definition that includes folks that are staying with other families, other households, because they can't find or afford a place of their own, uh, and a few other things, people in short-stay hotels and and the like. Now, do these different definitions, do they cause confusion to the public when we talk about homelessness? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So what does it look like here in Nashville? Uh, Well, homelessness... uh, of both types is going up. So uh, 
to try to understand how many people are homeless, one of the things we do in every community around the country is required to do um, is on a single night in January, go out and find as many people as we can find. Uh, and the numbers went up from 2022 to 2023. They haven't been released yet uh, for 2024, but when I was out there uh, on, on January on, during the count, uh, we found more people in my little area than had mm. been found the, the year before. Uh, we also see uh, the... Um, the schools, the HERO program in the schools are reporting that they're seeing more kids who experience the homelessness under the broader definition than they have seen previously. As you stated before, the 2024 numbers aren't out yet, but can you give me like some of the demographic breakdown for 2023? So in 2023, uh, we had, um, I have it here somewhere, um, eight 1,875 people that we found on the streets on a single night, but we served over 8,000 people mm. uh, over the course of the year. Many more people pass through homelessness than experience homelessness on a single night. Uh, and in terms of demographics, uh, African Americans are way overrepresented among people experiencing homelessness. That's true in Nashville. It's true across the country. Uh, other groups, Native Americans and Pacific Islanders, are also overrepresented. We see fewer of them in, in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has to do with longstanding discrimination in housing and income uh, and employment and incarceration and in opportunities to build wealth. Did the, did the pandemic exacerbate these numbers? Initially, uh, numbers may have decreased slightly during the pandemic, uh, but it was much harder to count. A lot of cities didn't do full counts Mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Now they seem to be up, and the national numbers are growing. Is Nashville's homeless population reflective of homelessness across the nation? I think we're pretty similar to to homelessness across the nation. Uh, It varies a little bit from coast to coast. On the East Coast, most people are in shelters. On the West Coast, most people are on the streets. Mm -hmm. We're somewhere in the middle. Okay. Now, for more on a national perspective, let's bring in Dr. Margot Cushell, a professor of medicine, division chief of the University of California, San Francisco, Center for Vulnerable Populations, pardon me, and director of the Benihoff Homelessness and Housing Initiative and happens to be the daughter-in-law of Dr. Shin, which is something we discovered after we invited both of you onto the show. (laughs) Dr. Cushell, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. You know, you're, you're based in San Francisco and you're still a practicing physician. And you're also a researcher at the University of California at San Francisco and the director of the Benihoff Homelessness Housing Initiative. Tell me this. What is the Benihoff Initiative? Yeah, we are a research and policy center um, based here at the medical school at UCSF. And what we try to do is both generate the research to help answer the questions of who becomes homeless, what happens to them when they're homeless, and how do we end homelessness. We also try to interpret the existing research, and we spend a lot of our time talking to the public and to policymakers to try to make sure that they're making decisions based on the best evidence. So what are the biggest misconceptions people have about homelessness? I think the single biggest misconception is that homelessness is synonymous with mental health and substance use problems. 
There's no question that people with mental health and substance use problems are at increased risk of homelessness. And there's also no question that being homeless increases your risk of developing or worsening those problems. But at its heart, homelessness is a problem of housing costs. We know that regions who have less availability of housing for the lowest income households are the regions with the most homelessness. And I think that goes with the other misconception is people in every region have this thought that people are flooding into their city, their county, um, because it's a great place to be homeless. I hear this all over the country, but most people who experience homelessness experience it right there where they lost their housing. So tell me, what are some of the myths that are associated with homelessness? You know, I think I think one of the other myths is that um, is that to end homelessness, people need to um, first start with treatment and that you need to mandate that treatment. And as a physician, I know that, um, first of all, many, many people who are housed um, have substance use and mental health problems. That is not, you know, exclusively among people who are homeless and, um, and that many people can thrive. But I also know that it's hard to help people heal from those problems while they're homeless. And so there's a really strong evidence base that says that the best way to have people exit homelessness is to offer them subsidized housing. So to help pay for their housing, to help find them housing, and then offer them an array of supportive services that help people thrive, but importantly, to make those voluntary. What we find when we do that is people get housed, stay housed, even people with lots of um, behavioral health struggles, and that they take up those services, even if they're not mandated to do so. We've seen, for instance, the Veterans Administration drive down the number of veterans who experience homelessness by half over the past decade by really um, doing two things. One, they got a lot of federal funding to help them end this problem. And two, they adhere to these principles, which are known as housing first. Housing first is this idea that to help people exit homelessness, you get them into housing first, and then you offer them the services to help them thrive there. Tell me this, what led you to this work? Why do you do it? You know, I um, really got involved in the work when I did my medical residency here at UCSF in the mid to late 1990s. I spent most of my time at our wonderful public hospital called San Francisco General Hospital. But when I was a medical resident taking care of patients day and night, half of the patients we saw on the inpatient service were homeless. About 9 or 10% of all the patients we took care of in our system were homeless, but half of those who were hospitalized were homeless. We would spend a lot of money and provide the very best medical care and then literally kick them out of the hospital mm. when they were, you know, ready to be kicked out, ready to be sent home. Um, and then two or three days later, they would come back sicker than they were because we were discharging them into homelessness. Mm. I realized that when people become homeless, everything else falls apart. And if I went into medicine because I really cared about people's health, the single most important thing that I could do to improve their health would be to help end their homelessness. As I like to say, there is no medicine as powerful as housing. And so I really went into it to end homelessness because of its incredibly negative effect on people's health. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekolona. This hour, it's all about our new series, In My Place, thanks in part to Pinnacle Financial Partners. In My Place is a nine-part look into homelessness from a local and national perspective. My guests are Dr. Mary Beth Shin and Dr. Margot Cushell. So let's talk a little bit more about the causes of homelessness. Many people believe, as as Dr. Cushell had mentioned, mental health, illness and substance abuse are the leading causes. But... Dr. Shin, what's your response to people who believe homelessness is an individual's choice or an illness that many people living outdoors or and that many people living outdoors want to remain homeless? Well, uh, let's start with the second part of, uh, of your question about people wanting to remain homeless. It depends on what's on offer. If what's on offer is a bed in a barracks, uh, some people will choose to stay outdoors where they are less regulated, less regimented. They have more freedoms. But if what's on offer is a home, uh, an apartment, there, hardly anyone will ever want to remain outdoors. Mm-hmm. And that's true in Nashville. When we've asked that question in our point-in-time count, everybody says, yes, if, if I had housing that met my needs, I would come indoors right away. Uh, so that really is another myth that people choose to, to be homeless. It really is compared to what? Mm. Um, in terms of the causes of, of homelessness and the myth about mental illness, it's probably also important to, to realize that about a third of the people who become homeless uh, across the country are in family groups. Uh, and the age at which you are most likely to find yourself in a homeless shelter is infancy. Mm. Uh, so homeless rates... Uh, as the Department of Housing and Urban Development counted, go down when kids get to school age because childcare expenses go down. Uh, But young families struggle to manage the costs of having a child and the costs of caring for that child, which either takes a family member out of the workforce or requires them to pay for costly care. So it really is, at base, a financial issue Homelessness has increased as affordable housing has become more and more scarce in in our country. Uh, And providing affordable housing to families really ends homelessness and has radiating benefits for other aspects of family life. So in a large experiment that that we did um, across the country, giving housing vouchers to families to hold their housing costs to 30% of income not only ended homelessness and every other form of residential instability, but it reduced psychological distress and it reduced substance abuse and it reduced domestic violence and food insecurity. So things that can sometimes cause homelessness got reduced when families simply had access to housing that they could afford. What's different about homelessness now than a decade or two ago? It's in some ways more entrenched. So there are more people who've had trouble extricating themselves from homelessness. Uh, uh, We sometimes call them chronically homeless. Uh, And uh, so those are folks that are really going to need the kind of housing that Dr. Cushell was talking about, uh, where you have housing and you also have the supportive services that people need but voluntary services that they can choose. Uh, And those can be mental health and substance services, but they can also be vocational services and educational services and recreational services to build community. Uh, So uh, that kind of housing is really important for folks uh, who have serious mental illnesses and who have gotten entrenched in in homelessness over time. Um, 
other folks uh, need less, and families often need nothing more than uh, affordable housing. Now, Dr. Cashel, this really fe- this feels very overwhelming, but so many people are in pain and so many systems are at play. Do you actually think homelessness can be solved? I absolutely do. What we're really lacking here is the political will to solve it. You know, the federal government um, and local government and state government, everyone really agreed that there should be no veteran who is homeless. And I agree. Nobody who has served this country should spend a night out on the streets or in our homeless shelters. I happen to think that nobody should spend a night out in the streets or in their shelters, whether or not they were a veteran. But because there's been political will to end veteran homelessness, despite homelessness in other communities going up, we've seen this dramatic reduction in homelessness among veterans. I take that as really proof positive that if we had the will to solve this problem, we can. It is not going to be easy. It's going to take us making changes at every level of government. Zoning reform. In California, we've had a lot of trouble creating housing for all the people who want to live here. To be clear, the people experiencing homelessness, they are long-term Californians. Nine out of 10 of them lost their stable housing in California. A much bigger amount were born in California than Californians overall. I was not born in California, but I moved out here like many others did, and we haven't built enough housing. So we need to solve that problem. But what we really, really need is a commitment to have the resources and to spend those resources, as Dr. Shin said, on things like housing vouchers to decrease the cost of housing, um, rather than to spend that money on what we're currently spending it on is things like big barrack-like shelters or policing or other things um, to police people's behavior while they're experiencing homelessness instead of actually using it to address ending their homelessness. What what about to everyone listening? Like in casual conversations at a bar or at a dinner party, people will talk about they want to do something about homelessness. But then, you know, nimbyism, not in my backyard, comes into play, as well as the ignorance that both of you have pointed out about the roots of the issue. What does the listener, anyone listening, what do they need to do to help this problem. I understand that governments, state, local, federal government can do, provide services. I understand that there's organizations that are providing services. But what about folks who are listening, the average person? What can we do? One thing to do is to vote. Mm. Um, That is, the resources that get devoted to this problem uh, depend on the political will and politicians are, at least in part, listening to their constituents. Uh, So demanding that we uh, fully fund the Department of Housing and Urban Development and increase the number of vouchers that are are out there is really important on the federal level. Uh, Thinking about the level of disability benefits for folks who uh, do have serious mental illnesses or other disabilities, uh, SSI and SSDI benefits aren't sufficient to rent even a studio apartment anywhere. Uh, We also need to think about stopping the generation of homelessness, right? So many people pass through homelessness over time and out the other end. But until we stop sending more people into homelessness, we're never going to fully solve the problem. Uh, And that means making housing more affordable 
And as Dr. Cushell mentioned, zoning and zoning does uh, is related to NIMBYism. Uh, we need to have duplexes and triplexes and quadruplexes basically everywhere. We need to have greater density on transportation corridors because people's housing costs and transportation costs really add add to one another. Uh, so uh, those are some of the things that uh, just an ordinary person can do. Now, Dr. Shin, in 2020, you published a book called In the Midst of Plenty, which is a great next step for people who want to dig into this topic more. Briefly, tell me, what's the biggest takeaway from the book? That, as Dr. Cushell said, uh, we can solve homelessness. We know how to solve it. We know how to solve it for families. We know how to solve it for fe- people with serious mental illnesses. Uh, it's a matter of political will and the resources that that political will can generate. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Mary Beth Shin with Vanderbilt University and Dr. Margot Cushell, professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and director of the Bynoff, pardon me, Homelessness and Housing Initiative. Question for you both. Was this the first time you both were on a panel together? I'm not sure, Margot. Can you... I'm you remember not sure. I one? think it's the first time we've been in radio together. Uh-huh. Um, we certainly Bam. go to a lot of meetings. <laughs> we go to Thank a lot of meetings. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it was absolutely an honor and a pleasure to have you both and to be a part of a family first <laughs> for you as well. Thank <laughs> yeah. you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear about two women starting the long road to housing. And we'll talk with people who have lived experience of being unhoused. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's a regular Wednesday at City Road Chapel in Madison. From 10 a.m. to noon, people who need help with anything from laundry to housing can stop by to tap into resources. There, Tasha A.F. Lemley met two different women, both needing a place to stay. This is my first time I've ever lived like this. Melba Lewis is about to be 70, and she's tired of living in her car. It hurts my legs bad. I can't pull my shoes, my tennis shoes. She says she's on Social Security and until about a year ago could handle her $800 rent. But them apartments over there just went up sky high, I think 1400 $1, for a one bedroom. I would have got me a little job or something, but it went up too fast. So she moved into her car. Recently, Lewis entered the Homeless Management Information System, or HMIS. It's a database that's often the first step to get into housing. She stops by City Road Chapel for an update, but there's no new news. Still. Life is one thing I enjoy every day. My daddy was the same way. My mother was the same way. We all enjoy life. Lewis is likely considered pretty vulnerable because of her age and health. So she may have a good chance of getting into a place this year. So my name is April Renee Aguirre, and I'm a recovering addict. Um, Seven months getting it out the mud, (laughs) getting me out the mud, getting my life critiquing me every single moment of the day. Aguirre's also at the church this morning. She's 43, a retired sex worker and newly sober after what she describes as a rock bottom relapse. 
She's now making $10 an hour at a store in Madison. And she and her teenagers, they're about to lose the couch they've been hopping. I wish I could tell you something's going to happen fast. It so nothing, nothing happens I'm fast. I'm a patient person. Um, I'm, I'm confident that I'm, I'm, I was led here for a reason, and I'm confident that it'll work out either way. You know what I mean? Whatever happens, I, I know that good things are coming. So, I, Because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing the work, you know, and that's yeah. the guarantee. That's the promise, right? You put in the work and you'll get the results. So. Pastor Jay Voorhees asks some questions, tries to settle any expectations. We're waiting for the Metro employee to return. They had taken off when no one else was there after finishing with Melba. They're going to ask you things like active drug addiction, all those kinds of things. The deal is, don't lie about it. Yeah, well, okay. Because yeah, right yeah. I'm not a liar. So, so, so all of that kind of stuff, um, because then what they do is they base the referrals off of kind of how folks are more vulnerable. He lets her know she'll be in a different system because of the teenagers and that his program for families is currently full. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other places. It's more bad news once April talks to the Metro HMIS employee. She says she feels shocked and dismissed. She's considered low vulnerability. She wanted to be honest with me and let me know that basically there's nothing they can do because I have a family. I'm not in bad enough shape for help. Even though I will be homeless with nowhere to sleep, with nowhere to put my things on the 29th. And don't do me any favors. I'm willing to put the work in. Give me some solutions. You gave me no solution. You gave me a white card with a number on it, a phone number, a handwritten phone number, and said, don't give up. So I won't. <laughs> Still, like Melba, April's someone who loves life and believes things will work out. She sees signs everywhere, and every moment has purpose. This comes up over and over again in our short time together. I'm thankful for everything, every single thing. To this morning, I was giving gratitude to my source for letting me hear the birds. I said, never let me stop hearing the birds. I'm deaf completely in one ear from where a pimp almost killed me on Christmas Eve because I was gone too long getting us breakfast. I just want to hear the birds until I go. Don't let me stop hearing the birds because that's my mama. She lets me know through the birds. Before the break, we just heard from national experts on the causes of homelessness. And as you heard, it looks different for everyone. We have three guests here today to talk about their experiences and paths to housing. I'd like to welcome Jamie Viejas, member of the Homelessness Planning Council, Deidre Childress with Gideon's Army, and Vicki Batcher, board member for Neighborhood Health. Thanks to you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for Thank you for having us. You know, let me start off, Jamie. You know, you moved here from the Bay Area in California. What brought you to Nashville? And tell me, how'd you end up on the streets? All right. Well, you know, I moved to Nashville about 11 years ago with my, um, my then domestic partner. Um, there was a family emergency going on, and we decided to pull up stakes and move, uh, move to Nashville, where he's from, um, and just help out with the family. Uh, after a very tumultuous relationship, you know, after splitting with him, uh, I finally got, made it onto my own. And during this, the, the year I got, uh, became homeless, uh, it was during COVID. Um, and, you know, there was the emergency re uh, rent relief fund. Uh, I submitted my application. But when the, the, uh, the, city, the city never received the rent rolls for, the, my, uh, for my, my, my rental history, 
because the apartment art complex, I was guessing, because it happened with multiple people in my complex, mm. um, that they were that they didn't afford it, um, probably in, in an effort to push out renters to raise rents. Um, so when you know, come January, when the, when the program ended, eviction notices came up, and I was all of a sudden packing my stuff into a U-Haul van by myself and living on someone's couch. After that. I, you know, I only was able to stay for a short amount of time, and I started hopping hotels. Um, and then also, I also, you know, in the same process, started dating someone, got myself stuck in Ohio for months after being abandoned there, after you know, having a life-changing medical diagnosis. And when I came back to Nashville, through grace of friends and everybody, um, I eventually found myself at Brookmead Park. Um, and there I did find a community and also resources because the service providers every week on Tuesdays would come, would come out, um, with the Colby's army. Um, so mental health co-op, uh, uh, homeless impact, everybody comes out and provides us, um, you know, the, the case management and resources we need to survive for the week and help to move us into housing. Uh, from there got into a rooming house. And and eventually got uh, got picked off the waiting list for uh, Hadley Park Towers. Have you been able to receive medical treatment? So I was able to receive while in the camp. We got basic medical tra- uh, services through Neighborhood Health um, through their mobile team, um, and the mental health services uh, through the Mental Health Co-op. Now, Vicky, you've had a different experience. You had two small children when you became unhoused. Tell me, what was that like? trying to explain to your kids um this is home now this is a car um was difficult but my kids were just so hopeful they never let any of us lose hope Mm. um they knew the problem we were having with evictions and such so i kind of made them a part of everything so that they could understand why this is going on um I think that was the blessing in it, was that my kids understood, um, because I was explaining to them what was going on. Mm. Um, you know, Mom, why didn't you make that much money? Well, because I don't have a college degree. I don't have this, don't have that. But we'll make it. We'll make it somehow. And we did. We did eventually. How old are your kids? To, um, they're going to be 31 December 15th of this year. Twins? Yes. Okay. And um, very fortunate to be in a, a situation now where we share an apartment together, equal share. One isn't foot in the bill, the other one isn't foot in the bill. We're mm-hmm. all equal together. It's been a wonderful journey. That's Congratulations. That's beautiful. Do they talk to you about that, those moments of being younger and unhoused? Not really. Not really. I see certain signs that will come up. Um and those are things that I wish I knew about earlier, but it's never too late to work on mm-hmm. work on certain things. Um, and there have been some tragedies along the way, but again, we've all grown tremendously. I'm very proud of where they are today, too. Mm-hmm. Now, Deidre, you're a Nashville native. Yes. You still live and work in the North Nashville community. Tell me what's your experience with being unhoused? Mine was due to domestic violence. So um, the only place I had to do was run 
I ended up, I, I was on Section 8 housing at the time. Couldn't get no help through them. They were, I would show up with black eyes uh, being abused. I couldn't get no help through the people in the community. So the best thing for me to do when I had a chance to leave, um, I left and me and my kids chose. I chose to take my five children and we slept in my suburban. And um, from then, uh, I learned how to just stay strong and find me another place to live. But um, at the time, because I was going through so much, I didn't share it with my friends and family as much. I had one friend, her name is Nicole. She would let me pull my suburban in her yard mm -hmm. so we could be safe and sleep. Um, I was a little cocky, right? I, was, I, I, was, I wasn't humble enough at the time to really let a lot of my family know what I was going through. But um, my experiences during that time, the domestic abuse is what forced us onto the streets and to seek help uh, through organizations. And Martha O'Brien is one organization that kind of helped me at that time. How did how was Martha O'Brien's help different from, you said you sought help from folks. I tried to seek help through, uh, like, the people I was renting my house from, uh -huh. uh, MDHA. I just was trying to see if they had any type of shelters, any place that I could go to be safe and me and my kids would be safe because at that point I was just, I was carrying double black eyes a lot. And I just uh, wanted to be safe. And I, I couldn't even go to my own parents' house yeah. and be safe because my perpetrator would pay my family, you know, to find out where I'm at and certain things like that. I don't want to go too much detail, but... Um, Did that, that... That probably caused an issue, like who you could trust when you're in it, this vulnerable moment. It did. And I've, I really couldn't trust a lot of people at that time, period. So um, not being able to trust my own family members because of money... Uh, was a very struggle mentally. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. Today is the first edition of our series, In My Place, brought to you by Pinnacle Financial Partners. We're talking about how the unhoused community is impacted by misconceptions, myths, and policy, policy decisions. My guests are Jamie Viejas, Deidre Childress, and Vicki Batcher. So all of you are in housing now. I want to talk about that transition. You know, Vicki, when you moved back into your own apartment, tell me what the first few weeks or months were like. Scary, actually. Um, when when I got out of homelessness and I went into uh, government housing, MDHA, um, new things, you know, a new sound, maybe somebody next door using their toilet. I had no clue what it was. It would scare me in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, getting used to those sounds and, and such. Um, and then feeling safe, feeling safe where you're at. Um, and unfortunately, there were some situations that came up that we were not safe. And we found out, even with my ESA faith, um, she was being assaulted at this place where I was living. Mm. Um, but a wonderful opportunity came up, and, and that's hope. Every single day, I lived with hope knowing that something else, something better was going to come along. And it did. And it did. Um, my kids wanted to get out of the apartment they were living in. And I wanted to get out of the place where I was living in. And now we share equally a three-bedroom apartment. Mm. And it's wonderful. It made the journey worth it. A safe environment for you all. Yes. Yes. Mm. Congratulations. A and old. You know, yeah. I'm, no, I'm no spring chicken. <laughs> um, so having having to live with your kids, it's like... 
it's like an odd thing, you know, always saying, Mom, can I help you? It's like, no, if I want help, I'll ask for it. Mm -hmm. And this kind of thing. Jamie, how did you integrate into a new community? So, I mean, for me, so this is... um, the, there was two two kind of ways. I'm going to talk about more with a moving into the permanent housing at, the, at Headley Park. And I'll tell you this. When I lived in the camps, we had a community. It's a very tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody can you know knows who they can go to if they you know want need, need company, need a shoulder to cry on. Um, it's a bit different when you move alone into public housing. You know, it's 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 like at first you're like oh my god I can't believe I finally have a home I have a permanent door I have a door to my apartment a key mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about people stealing my stuff but then the solitude the solitude kicks in and you realize oh wow there's really nobody around for me to you know just go and hang out with um, and you know things like bills start coming up um, and it's and it's and I'm I'm not alone in in in, in this in this regard. Uh, a lot of times when you exit out of homelessness, it's it's I, I like to say it's 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 the process of getting out of homelessness is actually more simple than keeping out of homelessness. Um, A few guests have have expressed that sentiment before in previous episodes we've done on the topic. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So while 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 you're on the street. There are there are a lot of kind of uh, services geared towards getting you off the street. Mm-hmm. But the problem is is that we don't have enough wraparound services that um, that offer services in housing retention. Mm. Um, so you know, helping out with you know utility bills or just the process of renewing your MDHA master lease. Um, you know, all these kind of base things that you know a lot of people you know in the, in the regular world take for you know as a basic thing. We're, you know, because we're so new into back into housing situations, that a lot of this is foreign. A lot of it has changed since the last time someone was housed. Um, so, it, without these kind of, you know, without you know, case management and what I like to call, ask for, call peer support, there are a lot of us who have been through this process now, and we should be in a position to be able to help our fellow, you know, formerly unhoused brothers and sisters. To stay out of uh, out of the homelessness, and I think there's there should be more programming geared towards that. Now, Deidre, you've been working as a service provider, helping other people in your community. From a unique perspective, though, what, what would you say are some of the issues service providers need to be aware of when they assist people? Um, let's say first your ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. I believe um, trauma informed care is another thing. Uh, if if Providers will look more at the background of where people are coming from. You could understand where they're headed, right? Um, and I know these women beside me, we talk a lot um, when we're in our meetings about the policies and the red tapes and the everything that you have to go to to even get housed these days is really is scary because by the time you get safe housing, I didn't, when y'all just had the first half of this segment, I didn't hear nobody talk about safe housing. You can be housed all day. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have housing that's safe, who are we helping? Mm-hmm. We're just putting people back into bad situations. And I can speak on that because my domestic abuse, that's what I learned. I was just in a bad situation. It didn't help me to have housing. It didn't help me to have money. It didn't help me to have food. It didn't help for my kids to be in a good school because guess what? We was not safe. 
Mm. Right. So that's why I do this work and I try to provide safe housing for people. I try to find good landlords. That's one. Right. I try to uh, just make sure it's a good neighborhood where it ain't no lot of uh, gun violence, drug violence, uh, just overall bad violence for the neighbors and the children. And, you know, so uh, if we could just start with that first ASICs, you know, uh, finding where people are coming from. Because if, if, if I lived in a neighborhood where gun violence is prominent, I don't want to go back to another neighborhood like that because now I got post-traumatic stress, right, from mm-hmm. where I come from. And finding so, finding affordable housing is nearly impossible, but they're going to put you in housing in these neighborhoods in these that neighborhoods. aren't safe. Safe housing is imperative. I, I've got to wrap up, but okay. I, w- I want to ask my final question to you, Deidre. Okay. You know, there's people who are providing services. Mm-hmm. There's staff members there. Mm-hmm. I, re- I read something interesting in your pre-interview where you mm-hmm. spoke about People who are providing these services aren't necessarily treating the people they're meant to serve like humans. No. Talk to me about that. Okay, so just from me helping my clients, uh, neighborhood health is a great place, but I'm going to just use neighborhood health. You could say you could go into neighborhood health. The receptionist might be mad because they're at work that day, and they might treat the person bad because they might got a bad odor or they don't have adequate clothing on or anything. So the first person that you meet in some of these organizations, these larger organizations, I don't want to throw no names out there, but the smaller organizations treat our unhoused population way better than some of these larger organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I try to stray away from sending my clients to like Salvation Army and other places like that because the people just don't treat them fairly. They shine on them, they look down on them, and they just talk to them very badly. Uh, and I've witnessed it. And then they be thinking I'm a caseworker, not knowing I'm just a standing person advocate for this person in the community. And I see how you're treating them. Mm-hmm. And you don't know, I might know your boss or I might know somebody. And then when I do come back, you might be fired because I done made a complaint because have you treated someone inhumane and made them feel less than already they're unhoused. You can't feel no lesser than that if you don't have a safe place to be. So why would I come into an organization to get help and support and you treat me even worse than Mm -hmm. I'm already feeling? I want to thank my guests for being on the show. Deidre Childress, Jamie Viejas, and Vicki Batcher. Thanks to you all. They all have served on the Homeless Planning Council. It's a community board that represents a wide variety of different stakeholders to address homelessness in Nashville. I appreciate you all for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. We got to take one more quick break. When we come back, we'll get some live feedback from a person who has lived experiences with homelessness. Stay with us. This is Nashville. Lily Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're ending our first episode on homelessness by bringing on a special commentator, Liz Mallard. Liz is a former guest and also has lived experience. We, we've asked her to listen to today's episode and provide us with some live feedback. Liz, it's so good to see you again. Thank you for having me. Really a pleasure to have you here. We're kind of putting you on the spot for some live feedback. You ready? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So tell me what you've listened to so far. What's one thing you learned? 
nobody really knows <laughs> what to do or how to fix this homelessness. I mean, I feel as if everybody talks about it and they they're all approaching it different ways. And instead of one place doing this and one place doing that, why don't we work together? Because I did hear that it needs to be individualized and that does need to be heard more. But I've I, just nobody knows exactly how to fix it. So talking about it, what we can really do is like be about it. You know, that's that's just mm -hmm. the reality of it. It's not anything but meetings on meetings and we could have, you know, interviews on interviews and instead of talking about all these important issues and how we're going to do this, let's do it, people. Let's work together and do it. Let's work together literally, not, well, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, my way works better. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be the focus on people. Let's focus that this is a person and I don't think there's a lot of focus on the fact that we're talking about homelessness. I consider them my friends, mm -hmm. you know, the family that I had out there. And I think if they put it in perspective of maybe somebody they know and mm -hmm. as a person, you know, like, how would you feel if your daughter, if your mother was experiencing this, what would you do to help them out of that situation? Uh, not to be cliche, but it's, do you feel like there's too many cooks in the kitchen stirring the pot, arguing over what ingredients to use? But there's a line of people who are hungry. Uh, I think it's interesting you say that because that is exactly what I try to make. Like I pointed out, I'm like, okay, so this was a, a success for you. This was a success for you. So instead of you did this, you did this, look what I did. Hey, let's work together. This organization does this, but we don't know how to do this. So we'll send them over here. Refer them out rather than know one part of it, stick them in a house, and then question why they failed. Mm -hmm. You know, like housing first, definitely, because they cannot focus on anything until they're out of that environment of looking over their shoulder or, you know, when's my next meal? Get them secure, keep the trust, keep the support, and then we can focus on the drug and alcohol, and it doesn't need to be... I don't know, just everything else. It's just housing first so we can focus on the other thing and working together, mm -hmm. knowing what you can do and can't do. Is, was there something you heard that you disagree with? The treatment first. Okay. <laughs> I know from personally, um, I'm bad alcoholic. Today I'm 38 months sober, but would Congrats. I... Thank you. Would I have focused on that? No. I now am learning with sobriety the needs that I need and what I was self-medicating. But I wouldn't be able to know that until I got housing. And not everybody wants treatment. And let's say, okay, we want treatment. There's no treatment centers open. We're in the same situation. Mm. So let's focus on getting them out and getting them safe. Okay, so... I want to hear what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. We've got eight more. The two producers are sitting in the control room, open ears with pen and pad in hand. What do you want to hear more about in upcoming episodes? I think the more that everybody hears what the people that have experienced have actually experienced and put it in reality. I need to hear not what we think and what we want to do, what they're doing and what if we go from what they're doing let's pick up okay well this is where this is lacking and i think just 
having that experience and the people that can come back and maybe sit right here and see the struggles, hear the struggles and see that this is a person. So I think it needs to be more lived experience as well, but more lived experience to show what exactly is needed. So so what do you want people to know more about? Like, how can we allow our listeners who are listening right now on the podcast version, how can they see the folks who are talking as people? How can they see the folks in their neighborhoods, close to their neighborhoods, on their commutes to work? How can they see them as people? Because something I find is we talk about these issues and, oh, I see them as people, but there comes to be a block when it comes to actually taking action and helping folks, you know, Tell our listeners how to look at other people as human beings. Like they're your family. Like it is your mother out there in the cold with no food, holding a sign exactly that, and you're driving right past and not giving them the time of day. They are people. When you look at it like it's a family member, it's easier to see. And not just that's a homeless person, they're drunk or high or anything. There's somebody that needs a meal. There's somebody that... Yeah, that may be whatever is their own, what they're going to use anything for, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if people saw them as a family member, it would be more impressionable. A close family member. A close family member, yeah. Yeah. You know, your own child, your Mm -hmm. mother. It puts it in a whole nother perspective. And what can you do for them rather than talk about them and shun them? Mm. I really appreciate you being here and giving us this live feedback as you rock. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, the contributor is trying to pack the house for their Vendor Awards Breakfast on March 7th at 7.30 a.m. at Belmont University. At the event, they award their top top vendors, neighbors experiencing homelessness who sell the paper. You can register at thecontributor.org. Tickets are only $5. And... I'm keynoting, so come and see me. Hit it, hit it up at thecontributor.org. Thanks again to all of my guests for being here, and thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Limley and Judith Tackett. It was directed by Tasha A.F. Limley as well. Our board, di- board operator, pardon me, is... Liv Lombardi, the masterminds behind our music theme are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Pinnacle Financial Partners. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get good podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekeluna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>